You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, author and entrepreneur Alistair Kroll, who also co-chairs our Strata Plus Hadoop World Conference, talks with musician and performer Amanda Palmer about the current state of the music industry and how she's navigating her way through new platforms, crowdfunding, and an ever-increasing amount of data. Alistair also has just published a new report, Music Science, How Data and Digital Content Are Changing Music. You can download the free report at O'Reilly.com slash go slash music science. Now, here's Amanda Palmer. Enjoy the show. Hey, Amanda. Hi. So before we get started, tell me a little about your background. Well, I'm a musician. Um, I, I started out as a kid being very, very into music and theater and always wanting to do both. And then in my mid-twenties, um, I started a band called the Dresden Dolls and went off onto the great road of rock and roll and major labels and touring the world again and again and again and, you know, making old-fashioned record albums and all that. And then um, in 2008, I went solo and that sort of jettisoned me off into a, a sort of a DIY career where I really didn't want to work with a major label because I found that not working. I had really embraced the internet, especially like in the mid 2000s with my blog and then with Twitter and um, all sorts of forums and social media. And I've basically been, you know, spent, I've spent the past few years, the past few years for me have actually been very reflective going like, oh my God, what just happened? You know, in my path from being a street performer, which is what I was doing in my early 20s, to, you know, going the traditional band route to trying to figure out how to just work directly with people on the internet to share my art and get paid. And, um, and that's sort of where I am now. Right now, I'm pregnant and about to just do like a baby project. So <laughs> my brain is melting. So um, uh, we talked, I was talking earlier, uh, so I was talking earlier to Zoe Keating about this, that you guys both have very independent uh, views and very sort of control over your own music, mm. but very different takes on how to monetize it. And, you know, yeah. her as a classically trained cellist who gets used in TV shows and you who started out, please put some money in this empty guitar case. Yeah. How has that informed what you expect technology to do for your music? Uh, well, I always look at technology as a, um, as, as a friendly but suspicious tool. And so, uh, you know, every time a platform has popped up to make things easier, you know, um, when email showed up and when MySpace showed up and forums showed up, um, I, I embraced that because, you know, I saw that email mailers were sort of taking the place of having to go down to Kinko's and make flyers and put them up on, um, on signposts and stuff. And, and, you know, as every platform has come and gone, I've just sort of migrated sort of like to where the people are. Um, and, you know, with, with Twitter sort of being a, a weird exception, which is I adopted Twitter pretty early and I brought a lot of people into Twitter and then Twitter sort of caught up and became sort of less of a clubhouse and more of a mainstream idea that people understood. Um, but I've always approached every internet platform and every internet tool with the suspicion that it may not last and that actually what's very important is that the art and the relationships that i'm building um, are authentic enough that even if the internet disappeared tomorrow or even if facebook collapsed or twitter collapsed or what have you or all of our email went down um, i'm not so reliant on the internet itself that i couldn't somehow piece things together and so i've always just been very slutty 
and like I'll use whatever is available to um to 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 forward my agenda of connecting with people. But I will also like I also approach everything with a, a level of um you know skepticism right. that that these things definitely will come and go and they're not in my control. So had you been an artist in the seventies or eighties, you'd be very dependent on someone sending you like a printed report each quarter for yeah. song sales, and that would be the end of it really. Today you know, we have so much with music as a service through streaming platforms, you get to see like a count of clicks and skips and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, is that better or worse for your relationship with your audience? I don't look at it. Really? That's yeah. I mean, the funny thing about me is that I'm very nerdy in certain departments and I really will analyze certain things, but other things I will just <laughs> flat out ignore and it's been really like it's been really interesting watching my own evolution as as like an artist with knowledge and you know looking at you know iTunes versus YouTube counts versus you know what people are discussing when they're discussing me on Twitter or when they're discussing me on Facebook or where they're sharing their experience of what songs they love with other fans or with strangers and one of the things and it's funny we were just in a session talking about this um you know when you are a when you are forced as an artist as most of us are um to basically market your own music and be your own brand and all that kind of thing you can really get sucked down you know you get to sort of like choose your own rabbit hole that you're gonna that you're gonna chase and i think you know I still put a lot of weight on the live experience. Um, I love performing live. And I can sort of tell what resonates and what works when I'm in front of a bunch of people. And, and it's also very interesting to see what resonates and works on the internet. And, you know, I, I had kind of, I don't want to call it a throwaway song, but a sort of a very, you know, what felt like a small, unimportant song on a weird little, uh, you know, um, side project record that I just happened to make into a music video because I just happened to be in an abandoned space with a filmmaker friend and said, hey, let's just like knock off a music video here. We're here today. It's this cool space. You lip synced it and then... I like, just yeah. lip synced it with zero budget and zero script and zero plan. Right. And we just kind of fooled around for a couple of hours and he pasted it into a video. And that has become one of my most watched YouTube videos, which then means that that has become one of the most resonant songs with my fan base, right. which means that when I play it live, everyone's right. heart goes pitter-pat. <laughs> and, and I can't take YouTube and, and, and the fact that we had the technology to make a video on zero budget and just put it up for shits and giggles on the fly for granted. Right. And so I also try not to take Twitter for granted. I mean, I just wrote a whole book about how I wound up um, having success with crowdfunding. And it's very easy, I think, as people who use the internet to look back and sort of assume, especially like, I mean, people here probably not because people here are very smart and savvy, but it's very easy to look back and, and take all of these tools for granted. And that of like, oh, of course that had to have happened because, you know, email came along or Twitter came along. But when you actually sort of step back and start analyzing it, those things can really blow your mind, which well, is like, I this mean, wouldn't have happened, and this wouldn't have happened, and this wouldn't have happened. In, in a lot of ways, the label, one of the things a publisher would do is give you a bag full of money so you could finish your work, mm. and then you were sort of beholden to them, and you may never see another penny for a long period of time. Right. 
but they had this function of I'm going to loan you the money up front. Right? Get it a bank. And, and now you've got crowdfunding coming along and saying you can you can test the popularity of your ideas. You can do all this stuff. You had tremendous success with that process. Yeah. That sort of was like the last nail in the coffin of the things that the labels and publishers did in many ways. Because now I can publish my stuff with CD Baby to all the services. Right. It can find roots you know, on indie blogs and then show up in Shazam, which then drives its play on Spotify, which drives its sales and recommendation. Like there's a whole sprawl. Yeah. And you can get the money up front with crowdfunding platforms if you've got some kind of following. Yeah. Do we still need publishers? The unfortunate thing, and I have learned this being the kind of artist that I am, and especially the, the album that I put out through Kickstarter was um, by all definitions, like the most like palatable, radio-friendly, um, really listenable, high-production record I'd ever made. Um, and I did none of the major label things. I sort of like had, I took this leap of faith that like, of course, if the production value is high and the songs are touching and amazing and, you know, and the production is amazing and all these things, that it will now like magically float by itself because, you know, enough people have paid for it and are invested in it and we'll share the music and it will magically make its way into, you know, not even make its way into the mainstream, but make its the way into the world. Yeah, sure. Um, and that wasn't really the way it worked. I was, I really had to, and I've talked with plenty of other artists about that. Um, the record was critically hailed, like, you know, five stars across the critical board, but I didn't have the machine working for me. And I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that the machine still feeds what people listen to, um, whether it's radio or what gets licensed to films or what music is playing when you walk into a shop. Like the, the ability of an artist to actually really like get over that mountain if you decide not to play the game is still, your hands are still pretty tied. Then again, you know, I actually got so much more control and to keep so much more money that you kind of, you know, right. it's like like you want to have your cake and eat it too. Do you want total control and to be able to do this direct-to-fan thing but sort of live off the grid? Or do you want to go live on the grid but have to compromise things and, you know, and sort of play this weird music industry game? And, you know, uh, most... Is tech at least giving you the choice? I mean, I think it like it's a more porous border, but it's still a border with guards. Right. Is is sort of the way I look at it. If you could get any data from the music you put out there, what what data do you wish you could get back that you would look at? Oh. Um I would love to know how many people have listened to the complete album. It's like authors. I mean, I've seen yeah. books where I want to know, like we judge the, the number of highlighted comments that decrease dramatically as you go through the book as yeah. an indicator of whether they've actually read the book. Right? Yeah, I would love to know. I, I would love to know something like that. And I would love to know, you know, I would love to actually, <laughs> um, I, I would love to know when people, um, and this is just an, a very nerdy part of me, when people want to find out more about like Amanda Palmer's music, where do they go to look? Do they Google? Do they go to YouTube and put my name in? Do they go to iTunes? Do they, you know, go to my website and click on the music? Like, and that's, you know, those habits are, um, are a mystery to me. I know what I do. 
if I want to, if someone tells me, oh, you've, you've never heard so-and-so's music, you should definitely go check it out. I know the, you know, the little shortcuts that I have to find, you know, right. where, and, and, and oftentimes it's just going to YouTube, especially because I want to see that person live right. and I want to see them actually play their music. Do you think to, YouTube to... is a promotional platform, a discovery platform or a distribution platform today? I th right now, I think it's both. I think it's wearing two hats. I mean, Taylor Swift leaves her stuff on YouTube because it's promotional, takes it off Spotify, but YouTube is the largest source of revenue for India, uh, for the music industry in India. Yeah, I think Taylor Swift is out to lunch if the, she thinks that it's not both. And I think she probably knows it's both, but in her case, she needs to keep things kind of binary if she wants to make her simple argument. Right. Um, but clearly, if Taylor Swift is on Vivo and Vivo is putting ads before Taylor Swift songs, she's making money. Right. Um, so yes, it's promotional because, you know, it's free and her fans can go out and share her, her videos. Um, but if she's also making money, you can't argue that it's strictly promotional because sure. that would just be a lie. Um, so there's an, the immediacy with which we can find an album. I remember I'm old enough to remember the day when I heard a song and then I'd sit next to the radio the next night with my finger sort of hanging over the record, but just hoping yeah. for that thing for the mixtape. And I didn't want to pause too soon and then yeah. I'd get the next... And I'd like cue up the next song and I'd be working on that perfect mixtape for a month. And yeah. uh, today someone says, what do you think of the song? I click on the link. Like yeah. there's a, there's a sense of, I didn't have to work for that. That I feel it. You know, I feel it. I mean, I feel that in, in, in so many ways, especially like commitment to an artist when right. you go out and you, you buy the album because you heard the one song on or saw the one song on MTV and you go, you know, you pedal your dirt bike to the mall and you go to music land and you find the tape and you shoplift it or you buy it or whatever. Um, and then, but then you have it and you want to listen to the whole read thing. Read the liner notes. You look behind read the it. Liner notes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, I mean, I used to do this thing, especially if I was um, covering songs, but even just as a fan, I would sit there with my record and the needle on the record and like write down song lyrics. Oh, yeah. Because you couldn't find them anywhere. And if they didn't come with the vinyl, you had to like sit there and write them down. And, and you know, I, I feel very grumpy going like, oh, those are the good old days. But there was a, I feel like there was a level of commitment to the artist's output because it was so difficult to obtain. And once you got the album, you were, of course, you were going to listen to the whole thing because there was a scarcity and there was a limited number of, records that you could pull off the shelf at any given time and since you couldn't just skip through it you know you weren't going to get up like half a song into that and like go and like clean the record off and change it and put on another right. record you were gonna sit with that artist and you know and you might decide like i really only like side one so i'm only going to listen to side one um but i wonder you know, as I wonder with everything else happening to us in terms of what we will commit to in what way and for how long and how long can we sit with something, whether it's an article or a book or an artist, you know, what's gained and what's lost. And it, it, that to me is like a, it's a quantity quality dilemma. And, you know, I still think of albums as really complete works of art. You know, I can't think about my favorite bands of the 80s and the 90s without thinking of these complete albums that to me were like worlds, you know, like like entire books or like entire films that really sort of hung together and 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 lived in one place. And Zoe and I were just talking about that. I mean, she's actually, 
you know, she was saying that an album for her is like she wants to kind of make it all at one time and make one big statement and put it out kind of like you would put out an opera. Um, and I'm getting, you know, I'm deliberately trying to detach myself from that and just say like, you know, I wrote a song. I have this Patreon. I'm just going to put it out. I'm just going to put it out. And then at some point, maybe I will collect everything together so that the mainstream media people of the world can have an Amanda Palmer record. But maybe that format really is dying. And I just yeah, to... a number of the people I've talked to said you used to buy an album, then we listen to the singles. Now we buy a single and we and we look at the Instagram or we look at the stubs or whatever. There's yeah. these subsets. So let me ask you one last question about about um, taste making. So. Um, Rishi Malhotra at Savin says there's a lot of uh, algorithms that will tell you what song you should play next. Mm. But he also says that you know there's a need for curation. Apple hired Zane Lowe to come in and 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 sort of um, program stuff because he's such an influencer in music. Right. Um, you talked about the industry and the game in the industry needing to play the game so you get airtime so people find out who you are. But if an algorithm concludes that you know Amanda Palmer is the right thing to play after that song because that song is just perfect, maybe the right key and it's the right sentiment and people who stick around listening to it and so on. At some point, the algorithm's going to be like, someone's going to write an algorithm that's got to actually balance the best song and the one that's commercially viable that someone has payola in there, mm. right? What do you think the future of this sort of weird human machine playlist generating robot is going to do to music? I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I do know that it's, you know, it's having having been on the other end of the speakers listening to like the Dresden Dolls station on Pandora right. and going like, oof, yeah, no. What's the worst match that you saw in there? I'm not going to tell you. Right. <laughs> why would Huey I do Lewis that to Huey Lewis in the anyone? news comes up and you're like, what? Yeah. The funny thing is, Huey Lewis in the news, having been a huge influence on me, I'm not ashamed to say in 1982 and 83, um, makes a lot more sense. Actually, it was more like 1986 because I was like 10. Right. Then that was also, that was like heavy duty MTV was my like church at which I worshipped. And that was just, you know, that was that time. And I feel like I, I, I owe more to Huey Lewis in the news and have more connection with Huey Lewis in the news than I do with some of these bands that the Dresden Dolls would get grouped with where the music doesn't feel resonant, but because of certain it's got the same algorithmic genome, right? yeah, yeah. things, it gets sort of tossed in there. And I go, you know, that's not really the way it works. That's not really the way art works. It's not really the way feelings work. And yes, like you can definitely say like, okay, like piano, minor key, chick singer, but I would love to believe because I am, I mean, you can call me a pessimist or an optimist in this department, or you can call me uh, a Luddite or whatever. But I would love to believe that there is a really big, important X factor that, that, that humans making machines cannot solve for. And, you know, the same way I really don't want to live in a world where we agree that because, you know, Google can scan every great artwork in the world and generate wonderful new masterpieces for our walls and our museums. And um, like, why don't we just agree that that's not a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that we would rather have, a, a, and that we would rather live in a world with a more organic process. Which is not to say that AI is not useful and machines are not useful and that math is not useful. Um, but you know, but where's the fucking romance? 
in algorithming ourselves to death. I, that it just seems too scary. Awesome. I think that, that probably should be the front cover of the report. Oh. Yeah. Well done. Thank you Thanks. so much. You can find Alistair on Twitter at a Kroll and Amanda at Amanda Palmer. Thank you for joining us. Remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.